Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Uh, Today's guest is Blaine Hitzfield, CEO of Distribution for Seven Sons. We learned last week about all the complication and management that goes into the production of all the meat products, Seven Sons Markets, but that's just half the puzzle. And today we discuss with Blaine the challenges of building a market of this scale and how they manage the logistics of it today. So Blaine, welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Hey, Jared. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I really appreciate your time and, and, and hopping on. I uh, I did ask Blake last week this, but I'm curious specifically on the starting kind of, he gave me a bit of a history on what the farm looked like prior to making this transition into regenerative ag. Um, but as he made this transition, he talked a little bit about that transition of the production of a, a commodity-based agriculture meat product to a production of regenerative-based meat products and stuff. And I'm curious from your perspective, as you started to actually build a market, what did that transition look like as you're transitioning out of marketing commodity-based products to marketing of a direct-to-consumer-based meat product? Yeah, well, uh, someone that that I think really hit it the nail on the head when it comes to the learning curve for anything was Alan Nation. He was uh, quite a great mentor of ours. And he always talked about the learning curve with anything new. Most of the time we like to think of the learning curve as you start off at the bottom of that learning curve and it you know has that, you know, that sigmoid S curve mm-hmm. and you eventually make it to the top. Well, that's not where any learning curve starts in reality. It starts on a emotional, psychological high. You've learned something new. Mm-hmm. So as commodity farmers, you know, we got introduced to to people like Alan Nation, Jill Salatin, that talk a lot about direct marketing and regenerative foods and alternative, you know, ways of doing things. And my parents and our family got really excited, you know, and that's where we started off in our transition at a real emotional high. And it takes about, you know, you can make it through that first year on that emotional high. By the time you get to that second and third year, you really have to check your motives because it, it it was a steep learning curve transitioning from a commodity-based farm. And, and Blake might have explained, you know, originally my parents didn't have any intention on direct marketing. They just wanted to change their farming system because their belief system was challenged by a, by a health crisis in our family. They wanted to do something different. You know, it wasn't until, uh, you know, we, we were introduced to Alan Nation, Jill Salatin, and, and I think someone gave us the book Eat Wild by Jill Robinson. And we understood, hey, the products we're producing – that there's a there's a market for this, and this was early in early 2000, late 90s. At that time, I think Alan Nation reported there was only a hundred grazers that were both finishing and direct marketing grass fed beef at that time. Wow. So we were we were early in the game. But you know the thing that gave us you know when we hit that third year struggle, we call it the third year struggle, and it's easy to get stuck in that third year struggle for a long time. The thing that really gave us a lot of hope was when we started to develop our own customer base and you begin to see that an experience that 80% of the value uh, that's captured from what a farmer does is captured from the moment your product leaves a farm and makes it into the hands of a consumer. 
That's where 80% of the value is captured. And as we began to experience that, that gave us a, a newfound hope and motivation to keep climbing up that, that learning curve. Uh, you know, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. And that's one thing that we'll, you know, we'll tell anyone making a transition. Uh, it takes time. You know, everyone that buys food is already buying it from somewhere, from somebody, uh, from a grocery store somewhere. So when you get into the, the food marketing business, you are effectively having to convince someone to stop buying food somewhere and buy it from you. And again, 80% of the value is captured in that marketing distribution chain. Uh, all the distribution and marketing companies aren't, you know, they're territorial about their customers. They're, they're not just giving them up. Uh, so it takes time time and dedication and learning from others. You know, we, we focused early on, fortunately we focused early on with internet marketing, you know, it's more referred to as digital marketing now. And that was, that would definitely worked in our, in our benefit. I don't know how much Blake explained last week on the previous podcast, but you know, we were like anyone else. When you first get started, you do have to do some unscalable things. Farmers markets were our first Avenue and that was a great way to, you know, immerse ourselves with the customer, you know, talk face to face with our customers and, and, you know, learn about the objections and learn about you know, who our customer is, you know, but that led us to, you know, kind of ascending to more scalable things. We're, we're right outside of Fort Wayne, Indiana. There's 250,000 people uh, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So early on for us, it was a great move for us to start a on-farm store that was actually self-serve. But it was a great way to kind of ascend or migrate our farmers market customers to our store that was, like I, like I mentioned, self-serve. So it was fairly scale neutral. It didn't matter if one customer came every day or 10 customers. Uh, Just had to restock it a little bit more. <laughs> exactly. It's like a giant vending machine sure. on our farm. And that actually really, really, uh, we got a lot of traction with that early on. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we began focusing on uh, getting more exposure through using the internet. And that began to draw customers a little bit further from Fort Wayne, both in Fort Wayne to the store, but also customers in Chicago and Indianapolis, which are about two to three hours from our farm. That got us exposure in those areas. And we eventually launched our remote pickup location model um, that we stuck with for 10, 12 years. That really scaled our business. The combination of the the amount of visibility we got just from our organic website, being able to serve those customers well in those areas, in those population dense areas, really allowed us to scale. And then eventually we moved into home delivery. But that's kind of the that's kind of the long and short of a marketing journey. Yeah. And I appreciate that. It gives context to where we're going. But one of the the things that and I'm glad you mentioned this this challenge of, you know, high of emotional excitement and then the, the, the reality maybe sets in. And that's where I, I want to spend a little time is talking about that reality. Cause I know I've heard from listeners in the past is that a lot of podcasts with some of these, you know, Will Harris is big guests who have a lot of success, jump straight to where they're at and all of the great things, but not many people are there yet and they're a long ways off. So uh, yeah. if you don't mind, I'd like to start a little more in depth on where you first transitioned. Um, did the marketing of this direct meat product, did that, was that an initial goal when you decided to start transitioning your farming operation to a, a regenerative thing? Or did the, did the marketing come along down the road if, if, as you realized it was a necessity? And, yeah. yeah, yeah it, no, it definitely wasn't the original intent um, at all. Again, the original intent was let's, 
and this this would have been my my parents' vision. Let's uh, let's farm differently. I, again, it wasn't until you know friends and neighbors one was, were interested in our products purchasing directly that we realized there there could be some opportunity here. Um, you know, one of the first one of the first ways that in a lot of uh, ranchers and farmers, you know, when you're direct marketing protein will start is with selling whole halves and quarters. I don't know if you guys do that, Jared. Um, we sure do. At all. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, and so, we, and really, I guess before farmers markets, you know, we started with that business model, found a, a local processor to do that. You know, we got, we got a little traction with that early on, but you know, what we found is that, you know, not many consumers obviously are used to buying food that way. Um, one of the biggest hangups for us was, you know, when you're asking a customer to spend more than $200 on a single food purchase, you really come up against a lot of friction. And, uh, you know, if, it, if, it, if you're asking someone to spend more than $200, you, uh, you know, that automatically kind of becomes a two-person decision. So that means spouses need to get together. Do we really want to spend five, six, $700 on a quarter of a beef, for example? Um, so we eventually you know, moved, it took a little while, but we eventually moved away from, from that model, um, as, as time went on. But I will say early on, Jared, we, we really focused on how do we position ourselves to be found by customers who are already looking for what we're providing? You know, before that, we, you know, we felt like it was our job to go out and, find customers or educate customers. And you hear that a lot with direct marketing. If we could just educate more people um, and, and what the long and short of it, what we found is education is a good thing and we should be doing it, but it's not a marketing strategy at all. It's, it's, it's um, you know, it, it's very hard to uh, get people to think differently about food. So we learned early on, and it's not enough just to show up at farmers markets. It's not enough to try to educate our our friends and family. We need to position our our business to be found by those already looking for what we have. And that is, you know, that's the beauty of of using the internet uh, for marketing. Is you you have uh, people that are searching and making intentional searches, looking for what people like us already have. And so, you know that. That was a big help. Well, that's interesting even because in the late 90s, early 2000s, were there even people searching for this? Like was grass-finished, pasture-based meat products a thing at the time or, or was it very early on? It was kind of a sweet spot for us because it was early on. Not near as many people searching uh, then as they are now. But as I mentioned, according to Allen Nation, there's only 100 grazers that were, you know, that were direct marketing at that time. Mm -hmm. So even though even though search volume was, was lower, it was a great time for us to early to be positioned on the internet um, because they're just, it was low competition. Again, people were finding us on the internet, driving three hours from Chicago to the Fort Wayne area to go to this little on-farm store, load up their coolers once a month and, and drive back home. That, that was one of our advantages being early to the game. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's intriguing. And I was, talking with your brother and kind of mentioned how, you know, to take nothing away from what you guys have built, it's incredible timing, I'm sure played a big part of it. And it sounds like you hit a sweet spot as far as the, the right time with the technology available to do this online marketing and the, the people starting to shift their, their interests. 
timing timing can always work in in your favor or or regardless there's always new opportunities at any time period um so i, I don't want to leave listeners thinking that oh i'm i'm too late uh to the game there's always new opportunities something that that i think is different now than what it was 20 years ago for sure is that um, consumers have that much higher of a bar for convenience. Um, it it mm-hmm. used to be, again, going back to the freezer beef model, it used to be grass-fed beef was so hard to find. You just kind of had to put it out there. And it didn't matter how many hoops your customers had to jump through. They would jump through those hoops because they couldn't walk into their local Kroger um, or Whole Foods and find what they were looking for. Sure. You know, the, 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 the landscape has completely changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to... You know, our business and anyone getting into direct marketing really needs to consider the amount of convenience a customer now expects. And when I talk to other direct marketers, um, and a real focus of ours at Seven Sons is to recognize that for us to be successful with direct marketing, we have to do three things well, produce a quality product, earn our customers trust, and provide convenience. If, if we can do those three things well, over time, you will build a successful direct marketing business. If you look at anybody who's successful at direct marketing, they've they figured out a way to do, do those three things well. And and as a as small scale ranchers, grazers, and farmers, you know we're we're equipped really well to provide a quality product that our customers want. You know, compared to you know global food companies, they're not agile. They can't adjust and adapt to what consumers are looking for as fast as what we can. Yeah. And of course, a, a national uh, you know, beef brand isn't going to have the ability to earn the customer's trust like a local farm can. Mm-hmm. The authenticity that that adds. So when it you know when it comes to three, two out of those three aspects of being a successful direct marketer, the, the grazer, the, the local farmer, has a leg up where that big gap exists, and it's never been wider. Now is on the convenience side of it. So we've really zeroed in on convenience over the years, and it's and it's paid off. You know, it's it takes a lot of intentionality and discipline, but we've been kind of that slow turtle wins the race type company focused on delivering value to our customer and understanding, hey, our our customers are busy. You know, they have, you know, as much as they appreciate what we do, you know, it's a everyone lives fast paced lives right now and we can't make it too difficult to do business with us. So. As the market shifted and other companies came into the game, you know, Whole Foods, even Walmart, you know, you can get grass finished yep. beef. You obviously had to change your your uh, your convenience to, to match that convenience or, or come close anyway. But how does the pricing work where you're now dealing with massive scale companies that can get things cheaper probably than you can? How do you set your prices and yeah, I guess just discuss that a little bit. It's well, when, you know, when it comes to pricing, and and you know, ultimately, we, you know, if you if you get on Seven Sons website, we we're probably more expensive than what you can walk into a Kroger store, you know, fifteen miles from our farm, and 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 get. But um, again, that's where we've relied. We've definitely, again, we brought the convenience bar up to a minimum of where it needs to be, but that's where we really. We've also really focused on the story and authenticity of what we do. And something that's worked wonders to do that over time, Jared, has been the combination of our email list and 
our YouTube channel and video. Um, that, that's been a great combination. If you're looking for how do I build my story, how do I build authenticity with my customers so they're just not tempted to walk into Kroger every week mm-hmm. and, and buy grass-fed beef there, um, you know, we have a, a weekly email newsletter that goes out every Sunday. And you know, if you look at, one, it's a great opportunity to be able to forward and, and teach someone, send them to a YouTube video and literally bring them onto our farm. Because uh, that, that's one of the challenges with internet marketing. Uh, how do you build that relationship with authenticity? Well, again, we've used video technology to do that. Um, but every week we send that newsletter out. And if you look at our sales analytics on our website, uh, you know, it's like a heartbeat monitor yeah. going up and down. Every time that email goes out, you know, sales come in the door. So it, mm-hmm. it takes time and discipline to make sure that newsletter goes out every week. But it, it and, and and also, I will say that was an early focus of ours was building an email list. So if we were at a farmer's market, by golly, we had a clipboard at the farmer's market taking email signups. Mm-hmm. Same thing with our self-serve store. Email was a significant focus and still is today. So, Yeah, and I've heard of the importance of email from other people. But I, while you were saying that, I just texted my wife, we need to start a YouTube channel because that's, a, that's something that... Uh, that I don't hear too many people talk about, but it gives a new level of visualization and making people feel a connection. I'm sure that you you never can get through words or even a couple photos. Yes, yes, but I, w- I will warn everyone: it's it's probably just not enough to, to only do email or only do a, a YouTube uh, channel. The mm-hmm. combination of the two over time really builds that that relationship. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I kind of glanced over it and I realized now I shouldn't have is the, the convenience thing. As you transitioned your business away from that quarters, ace, or, you know, quarters has holes yeah. uh, in farmer's market, what were you doing to improve the convenience factor of what you were, your, of your marketing business? Well, c- convenience is one of those things that's, uh, you know, it's kind of abstract. It's like, how, how do I make my business more convenient? And, and so we, early on, we broke it down and, and I've got a few lectures and talks on this, but we broke it down into three aspects. So if we think of, think of it as a three-legged stool, you know, and think of yourselves as a farm, you are starting off at the bottom of the value chain. And as you ascend up the value chain, you're really just ascending up a, a convenience chain. Um, and so we think about convenience, first of all, with visibility. If When I talk to farms that are just getting started with direct marketing, I, the thing you hear is, I have a, a great product you know, I've focused the last three years on building my genetics, uh, investing in this great product, but nobody knows I exist. And so visibility is key. And you think about a, a farmer's market, you know, you're only, when you set up a booth at a farmer's market, you're only visible to the people that are obviously walking into that market and walking by your booth. You know, we knew early on, okay, if we're going to be more visible, we have to, uh, we have to make improvements there. So again, we focused on the, the internet to do that. And I know one of my goals early on was to focus on link building. That's something we did early on. So for a year, I made it my goal. How can we find uh, another website that can link to ours? Every week, I wanted to find a new website that could do that. We did that for a year. And that the, the value of link building is the fact that once you have a link out there on a food directory pointing back to our website, it's always there. It's always worked. So it's high residual uh, work. So hmm. link building was a... Uh, was a great strategy for us early on. 
but you know, once you have some, some visibility to your farm and, and something else I'll mention too, farmers are located obviously in, in more rural places. That's where the internet has such an advantage for us is, you know, we can use the internet to put visibility on our rural farm in the population dense areas. And so, but it's not enough just to be visible to people. Someone finds, let's say someone finds us in Chicago and we're three hours away from them. Well, that's not convenient. We've got to have a more accessible way to reach our customers. So just think about that. We've focused on getting our farm exposed to people who want our products. There's where it made sense to us early on. Well, just because someone found us in Chicago doesn't mean we're convenient to them. Uh, we need to start these pickup locations. Um, so that that was the, you know, the original, you know, thought behind the pickup locations. It wasn't necessarily a visibility strategy. It was simply an accessibility strategy. So focusing on the internet to fu- for people to find us using the pickup locations or buying clubs, some people call them, um, as a way to solve that accessibility equation. You know, now as I'm talking to new farms that are getting started, I almost always recommend farms starting with the direct home delivery model. Now, you know, there's, there's newer technologies and a lot of new training out there that makes that a lot easier to do at a smaller scale. Uh, it used to be you needed to, to start off at a larger scale to make home delivery and using companies like FedEx and UPS possible. But that, that's just not the case anymore. We have a lot of training on how to start home delivery programs at a smaller scale. Uh, but again, just because you know, just because you start off offering home delivery, you know, you're not complete until you've at least focused on uh, getting some exposure and visibility to your to your farm. The third thing that kind of completes that visibility platform, Jared, would be making sure that we have products available all throughout the year. And that becomes a lot of times a final hang up for a small farm getting started is dealing with the seasonality of their production. But if you don't have all three of those, those, those segments, you know, happening at the same time, visibility, accessibility, and, and availability, the inventory availability, it's really hard to, to get your, your business off the ground. Matter of fact, you know, this is the Herd Quitters podcast. Matter of fact, I remember er, in our early days, we were, we were struggling with, keeping our product available, inventory available year round. And at that time with our grass-fed beef program, we were we were spreading out our calving season all throughout the year in order to have animals finishing all throughout the year. And I remember talking to Kit Farrell about this conundrum because he's like, why are you doing that? You know, he's walking us through the yeah. cost of all that. And he's he just he's told me in an email, he's like, wouldn't you be better off to just buy a big freezer and freeze the product? I don't know why. I don't know why it took that email to get our minds thinking that way. And sure enough, he was right. We figured that you know it, it cost us four hundred dollars to at least four hundred dollars to finish four animals per month outside of our ideal window, outside of the grazing season, where we could store four animals processed on a single pallet in the freezer for less than forty dollars a month. Four hundred dollar cost versus forty dollar a month cost. So we solved that availability seasonal window. And again, we're in the protein business, not produce or something fresh like that. But we solved that through investing in freezers on our farms to store product and keep it available year round. So when you think about convenience, think about those three things. But you also have to change kind of your mindset around where you're positioning your capital as a farm. You know, something that we had to really 
change our mindset on Jared was the fact that if 80% of the value is captured in the marketing distribution phase of that product, we probably should have at least 50% of our assets and capital tied up in that, in that business uh, flow, you know, the, the distribution part of our business. So that was a big mind shift change for us. And, and at Seven Sons, if you look at, if you look at our assets, more than half of our assets are tied up in freezers, delivery trucks. If you look at our payroll, more than half of our payroll is, is tied up, you know, paying people to pack orders, to, to work with our digital marketing team. Uh, and that's just a mind shift change. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So it, there's so many things off of all what you just said that I, I could go. And it's almost overwhelming to, to think of that level uh, of where you're at. And, and so... For folks like even in my position here at the very beginning, just touching on almost that availability side of it, how do you recommend or work with people about like knowing, you know, how much meat to produce based on the market you have? Should you know, do you have the market and then produce the meat for that market? Do you do you have the market or the meat and then hope the market comes? I mean, that's a stressful part for us is every time we commit to a certain amount of animals, will we be able to say what, uh, what comes first, the the product in the freezer or the customer to yes. to buy it? And it's really yeah. just yeah, obviously it's a risk management uh, decision. So that means it's going to be different for every family farm. How much risk can they assume if the product didn't sell? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But some things to, to think about to help with that is, let's say you can risk putting two or three beef away in the freezer for the off season. Well, one thing to do is, you know, is to, is to dedicate part of that inventory to you know, always having sample packages available. So let's say you have a, a business that's really, really focused right now on fall freezer beef. So, you know, you sell most of your product in the fall when animals are getting finished. Well, a next step from that would be, okay, let me take one or two animals, process them the same way, kind of in uniform cuts and put together sample packages. So at least in the off season, when someone comes to me and they're interested in our product, I can at least introduce them to my farm by selling a 10 pound or a 20 pound uh, value box. That way you're not making a huge fundamental transition from a freezer beef model to putting all my inventory in a freezer and then, you know, trying to, you know, transition all at once. So, and ultimately that's what we did, Jared. We, we just, we, we slowly migrated from our freezer beef model to, you know, putting a few animals in, in our freezer and selling pre-boxed bundles. Eventually uh, that took off and we eventually close down the freezer beef side of our business because when someone, and, and we started off actually just pre-boxing what we called an eighth of a beef. It was just a predetermined balanced box. It was pretty much the same. And what was amazing for customers is, you know, they were used to coming to us interested in, in beef and we'd say, oh, well, we, you got to get on a waiting list, put a deposit down and two or three months later, we'll have your product for you. Now that we had some of that inventory already in the freezer, when someone came to us, they could stop by the farm anytime, you know, and pick up a pre-boxed bundle and they knew exactly what they were going to get. No confusion with hanging weight, cutting instructions, pick up windows. Think about the convenience of that. So the answer to your question is, it's how much risk can you assume putting inventory up in a freezer, but also thinking about doing it gradual uh, over time. So one thing that we would do, Jared, if we were starting over, let's say Seven Sons was moving halfway across the country. You know, something that we would do, is, especially if we were kind of making a transition on our farm, the thing about internet marketing is virtual. So we could, 
you know, we would want to begin building an email list and a following of interested people a year or two years before we even had the first pound of product in the freezer ready to sell. So it's never too early to start a YouTube channel. It's never too early to start a website, have a blog up there and document the the stories happening on your farm, have a Facebook profile, Instagram profile, and start sharing that content. It's the same thing you're going to be doing once you're in business, but at least you're developing a following of people that are, that are learning about what you're doing. We for sure would, would do that earlier. So that kind of talks about the availability side of it. I, I jump it around and I apologize if I'm confusing our listener, but the home delivery you talked about, you talked about FedEx, you talked about UPS and things. And I think you guys also have your own vans and delivery service as well. Um, what are some recommendations early on and, and maybe as you scale uh, to develop that home delivery service? Well, I think it's important to wherever you're located, kind of assess the, the population density around your farm. So for example, Seven Sons, we have 250,000 people, 15, 20 minutes from us. That made a lot of sense for us to start with that on-farm store. If you're a farm that you have a 100-mile radius and there isn't much of a population density, then you for sure need to think about either remote pickup locations or, as I mentioned, home delivery. You know, So what, one thing that we recommend farms doing is getting on a website called, I think it's Stats America. They have a little tool called, I think it's called the Big Radius Tool is what it's called, but you enter in your city and it'll give you a, a population density radius around your farm. And something you can do then is, you know, jump on a, a website like fedex.com or ups.com, type in your zip code there and, you know, look at the radius around your farm of how many people you could serve within a one day ground shipping zone. Because uh, this is where everyone gets overwhelmed with trying to set up home delivery through, you know, carriers like FedEx and UPS. Um, it gets really expensive to, you know, to ship within 24 hours frozen food, you know, 10, you know, five, six, seven states away. If you can, if there's enough people within your one day ground uh, radius, uh, that's a lot easier to figure out how to get meat in a box, insulated box, put some gel packs in there and keep it frozen for 24 hours for a one day FedEx ground delivery. It's far less expensive. And, and there's where I'm talking about, you don't have to start off with scale. You can start off with a one day ground uh, shipping zone. And that's even at a small scale, that's not very costly for you or your customer to absorb that cost and build it into your pricing model, you know, versus trying to figure out how to cover the entire country. But why we really recommend make sure you're, you're overlapping that one day shipping zone with your population density map is just make sure maybe you, maybe your farm, depending on where you're located, you might need to start off in a, in a two day ground shipping zone. So ideally, ideally you want to have at least a million to 2 million people within whenever, whatever shipping zone you, you decide to start shipping in, you want to have at least a couple million people in that, in that zone to do that. So uh, that's a big mistake that I do see farms starting off with is they might start pickup locations. They might start an on-farm store or even a one day home delivery service. But if there's not enough people within that radius, you're, it's just hard to get traction, really hard to get traction doing that. So, and something that we've done is, even from early on, Jared, we've at Seven Sons, we've been really focused on the technology side. So, you know, many people, 
know that Seven Sons is behind uh, Gracecart, the e-commerce software platform that literally we built from scratch to solve some of the big pain points that we were up against in our business. And one of those pain points was how do you, how do you filter customers that that come to your website and they want to place an order, but they live a thousand miles from you. You don't have a way to serve those customers. That's one problem and pain point that we solved with Gray's card is just a customer filter and onboarding system from the moment a customer decides they want to start shopping with you. There's basically a workflow that tells them, Hey, is my product available to you? And if so, how much does it cost? Uh, and so that was a real game changer for us to be able to start offering our home delivery program. And matter of fact, at Seven Sons, we we do ship across the entire country. But the way our our website e-commerce system works is the first thing we ask a customer for and a visitor for is their zip code. And based on the zip code that they live in, we show them the price that it costs to deliver it to them. So the price is already embedded in, in or the cost of delivery is already in the price of the product, uh, which is important to, to uh, show the customer. And it's part of convenience, show them the cost of the product delivered to their home instead of trying to tack on a delivery fee. I'm curious on the, like all of this to me as somebody who's trying to do it is still overwhelming (laughs) for the guy who's just getting into it. uh, And maybe is just like, you know, maybe this isn't for me. I I know you guys also do partner with other farmers to produce. And I'm curious if there's ways that, you know, either, and you may or may not be looking for their farm partners, but what are your thoughts on people producing food in this manner and just partnering with a marketer uh, uh, rather than building out a market entirely on their own? Yeah, we, we, and we do, we have, we do have farm uh, partners that we work with and it, it really depends on what your, you know, your holistic goal is. It depends on what the size of your farm is, because obviously if you're, if you're getting a, a lower value and a lower margin for your product, you know, how big is your farm and how much can you scale, you know, producing mm-hmm. for someone sure. that's doing the marketing. Yeah. So it's really a question of what's your goal? What's the size of your farm? You know, Seven Sons is only 550 acres. Um, but our goal was for all, you know, if, if all seven of us brothers wanted to stay on the farm, which we're very blessed and thankful that we've been able to do that. Our goal was how do we get 550 acres to support seven families? And now it supports even more than that with our entire staff. If that's our goal, well, we have to climb the value chain, if that makes sense. So, so there are, you know, there's multiple ways to do this. One thing, Jared, to consider is, you know, instead of asking the, how do I do this? direct marketing thing, you could ask the question of who can I partner with to help me with this direct marketing uh, thing? You know, is it, mm-hmm. is it your, you know, your skill set? Um, and is it what you enjoy? Um, and if, you know, if the answer is no, I do not enjoy marketing. I, it's not my skill set. Then I would be asking the who question, who can I partner with even on a fractional basis to, you know, get my direct marketing business off the ground. And, uh, and that's something that at Seven Sons, we've, you know, really our family business is really just a bunch of partnerships, you know, under the Seven Sons umbrella. So those that, you know, early on, we realized that there's a lot of brothers here, a lot of different ideas. How do we all get along? How do we all have freedom to, you know, to pursue our entrepreneurial desires 
and kind of set our own goals. And, you know, behind the scenes at Seven Sons, there's people, brothers that own their own enterprises. They have their you know, freedom to set goals and to pursue, pursue their, their part of the business the way they want to. And, and so our, our marketing and our production businesses are completely separate. But there's business transactions we buy and sell from each other. Uh, and that would, you know, there's, that's really not any different than, Jared, say you partnered with somebody to help you out on the marketing side. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that's a, that's a missed opportunity by a, a lot of farms, just not thinking about who can I get on board with, with our business. And, and, and really, you know, we stuck with it early on, Jared, and kind of pushed through that really painful learning curve. You know, but today, you know, we've really grown our business through hiring the right people that love to do the things that we hate to do. They do them far better than us. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, we're at the point where that's really moved the needle for us now. Okay. So if people are looking for a partner who's, I don't know, in the marketing side or something has got those skills, do you have any tips of how you found the right people in the right roles as you've scaled your business? Well, you know, for us, we really assessed as a family. The first thing I would start off is look at your family. Okay. I, I grew up working on the farm, but always believed that I would not stay on the farm because why? It, it necessarily, wasn't necessarily I felt like my skill set or what I really wanted to do. And, and several of us brothers gravitate more towards the production oriented work versus some of the, the uh, marketing work. And so that was the first place we looked at, okay, out of all the family members here, what do we enjoy doing? What do we excel at? And, and we were very intentional early on at giving opportunity for the family members to really zero in and focus on what they enjoyed. So that's the first place I would look is, is within your own family. Um, but even for us, Jared, it started off on a fractional basis. I worked off the farm for at least probably three years after high school. I didn't go to college, but, uh, just picked up a full-time job after high school off the farm. And I, I simply just was allowed to dabble in the direct marketing side. And, you know, you go, you can only do that for so long working a job and a half, you know, for about two or three years, mm-hmm. but eventually yeah. that two or three year period of, of, you know, working part-time on the farm on the marketing side, you know, gave enough traction that I was able to jump ship and go full-time uh, on the marketing side. Um, if, you know, if someone's not, interested within your family, I would look for, you know, just a close friend that uh, friend or just an acquaintance or put the word out. But if you're starting on a small scale, ultimately that person probably needs to be brought in as possibly a business partner or on a commission basis where it can start off, you know, in, in a small way, but a rewarding way initially. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. So I'm not a pro marketer and i Sure, I've missed a million things. What are the things that I haven't even asked about that you think would be really important for the listener to know? That's now? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, some, something that we we wish we would have done more of early on, Jared, was just getting out and visiting farms that are already where we want to be. You know, mm-hmm. it, it starts with listening to podcasts, reading books, but eventually you need to get out there and visit farms and you know, spend an afternoon just seeing, seeing with your own eyes how it works. 
You know, that's something we wish we would have done more of. And now we actually do more of today. And I want to go back and, and hit on what you mentioned that you're not a professional marketer. Um, you know, neither, neither were we, we didn't know a thing about marketing getting started. Um, Mm -hmm. but it was something that several of us enjoyed here in the family. And, um, I think what was important is that, you know, my parents were, you know, we didn't have, you know, we started off in debt. The farm was purchased with, with, you know, bank loans. And when we transitioned to regenerative practices, we went further into debt. So we didn't have, you know, we weren't propped up with money at all. And we didn't, weren't propped up with any experience when it came to the marketing side. Uh, But my parents were very generous about uh, giving each one of us brothers freedom to, to pursue our own interest and to let us become business partners, you know, on the farm. And, and um, so, you know, that's something that um, I'd really encourage anybody who has a family business operation to meet as a family and talk about everyone's individual roles and strengths. You know, we, we categorize kind of three different types of, of people that it takes to have a successful business. As I mentioned earlier, there's the, the production oriented type person. There is the we call it more the analytical or management type person. They're the ones that are going to zero in on that spreadsheet, the accountant type person. And, and usually, and then there's the marketing type person, sales and marketing oriented people. Generally, one person thrives at one of those three, but your family business needs all of them at the same time. So, you know, so take inventory as a family, as a business and figure out where are those gaps um, a lot of times, it, a lot of times it is marketing. Um, but uh, if that is, find a family member that enjoys it, or someone you can partner with. And as I mentioned, go out and visit, go out and visit farms, get on the road, and see what they're doing. It, it's probably a, a fortunate that you had seven brothers to that. That between the seven of you, most of those skill sets probably everybody had. Um, and I'm going to ask you kind of the question I asked Blake too, is, is any tips or, or learning curves that you've had working with family and that much family? It can be, you know, you know, some people have terrible struggles working with family and you, you've got a lot of it there. How have you done that? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we, we've done some very practical things at Seven Sons to make what we feel like our, our family business to be a success, but that's going to look different for, for every farming operation. And not that we're perfect, but anyway, we're just like any other family. It hurts habits and struggles and, and all kinds of things. But we're, we can all, if you talk to any one of my brothers, you, we would tell you that we genuinely enjoy uh, working together. You know, again, there's, there's six spouses, seven of us brothers on the farm. There's 11 grandkids. We're very blessed to be doing what we're doing. But something that we've really focused on, I've already hit on this, is giving some healthy space and independence within our business ecosystem. We feel like that's really helped. We have a little family business creed that we say around the farm and it's, we treat family like family and we treat business like business. And that's a delicate balance. But the, the, the more we've focused on treating our business as a business, the, the better we've been able to get along as a family. You know, and that means all the way down to, you know, each one of us you know, buy food from the the family business. You know, we don't get free, free food, free meat. Uh, it's, you know, everything's treated as a business and each person is, is giving, you know, we, we have, we have nine different business entities and enterprises here. 
and not everyone's an owner on each wow. one of them. So that just tells you the amount of mm-hmm. uh, kind of autonomy that exists because every family member is going to have their unique vision and aspirations for their quality of life and how, you know, how they want to structure their, their own uh, job and business. And we've focused on giving each family member the opportunity to kind of structure that for themselves. And, and that's been very helpful for us. So that's just a practical you know, tip that, that we share with other farms. Um, it's not, again, it's not one big business entity called Seven Sons here. It's nine mm-hmm. different enterprises owned by uh, multiple different people, uh, brothers, that have a lot of incentive to see their in, uh, their own individual enterprise succeed. You know, as we're all working together for for the you know a common vision and and direction. Now that's really interesting. Do you find yourself maybe this is getting even into the personal stuff, but do you find pressure as the marketer to make the opportunity for a lot of the brothers and the the different operations and entities to find success? Because it, a lot of it comes down to the ability to market the product being produced. Yes. Um, but there's a lot of communication that has to happen. You know, we're always communicating on what is each other's goals for, you know, volumes and scale, you know, cause marketing opportunities depend upon, you know, the volume in which we can move product and the price that it would need to be priced at. So there's just a lot of, because our production and marketing businesses are separate, you know, there's just a lot of communication that has to happen between those two different businesses. But for the most part, you know, we, and we do have to talk about, risk management because what if the marketer says, I'm pretty sure we have a market for an extra hundred animals this year, and which was this year that happened this year. And we, you know, market changed mm-hmm. for us a little bit and we've got a hundred or so beef that we don't have a market for. Um, so sure. it's important that we communicate on when that happens, how are we sharing that risk uh, together? And we do that with all of our, our enterprises. Yeah. So that takes some pressure off knowing that, okay, if this did happen, you know, what do we do? I appreciate you sharing that. I, I know I, it's just something that was running in my head, thinking through all these different things is the, the, the unique challenges that are faced by business structured like yours. And, and I appreciate you sharing that. One thing I will add is that when I talk to other family businesses, there's a common thread between the ones that are, are working together and getting along and, and the ones that aren't. And, and I almost would just bring it, boil it down to, you know, some people want to get along and some people don't. And you, you, you have to draw that fundamental line in the sand. Do you want to get along? And because you know, we've had, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's been times where one of us brothers is frustrated about something and we always remind each other that, yes, this is a valid frustration and we need to work this out. But just remember the moment we decide it's not worth it and it's not worth putting in the effort to work out at that very moment in time is when all this falls apart. Because if we don't get along, Mm-hmm. And we can't work together as a family. It it all melt melt to pieces. Um, but remembering what's at stake. It, it is the success of the family business, whether you know we care enough to get along. Yeah, great. I appreciate that. Uh, what are the goals for the Seven Sons brand and, and marketing arm of the business going forward? Well, we want to. There's a lot of different goals, but one of our goals moving forward is to take a lot of what we've done with the technology innovation, especially with our e-commerce system. You know, we feel like we've, with our e-commerce system, Grayscart, we feel like we've really built something that doesn't exist out there, solves problems that haven't been solved. How do we make that available to more farms? And we would love to see a thousand Seven Sons farms 
you know, not the name Seven Sons, but a thousand farms like us doing what we're doing all across the country. I and mean, that's our ultimate goal in the next 10 to 15 years is mm-hmm. to see more farms like us uh, doing what we're doing. And that's that's a big part of our, our mission. Um, you know, we, we're one of our core values at Seven Sons is continuous growth. So we're, we're going to be focused on pushing the curve on growth and, and technology innovations. We really do make a strong connection between the growth of our business, home delivery e-commerce business with our technology innovations. One of the things that we're, we've been working on for the last six months is creating a, uh, a very innovative subscription model format where our customers can migrate from just standard e-commerce customers that are buying you know, on a per order basis to adopting subscription services. That's been something that's really, you know, a lot of e-commerce companies have had a lot of success with. So we're working on technology to innovate with that. So, um, you know, continuous growth. If our business isn't growing, we personally won't be growing as people. So, you know, that's, that's part of it. We've got all kinds of ideas though, but we meet every month as brothers and, you know, we're always sharing what's our, our three biggest accomplishments from the last month. And what are the three biggest goals we have for the upcoming month? And lots of ideas come out in those. And we also have annual planning meetings where we're kind of doing the same thing. Uh, what's our three biggest goals for the year? So we've got ideas. You know, we just came back from White Oak Pastures down in Bluffton, Georgia. So we've got ideas for restaurants, expanded store, all kinds I of love things. It. Uh, but the key is not getting overwhelmed. Uh, that's one thing that we did early on is diversity is good. You know, we came from a monoculture, very little diversity. And then we, you know, we kind of went overboard with 20 different enterprises early on. And that's okay because you're trying to figure out what are we good at? What do we enjoy? What's our environment best for? Uh, But you do need to narrow in on what are you really good at? So at Seven Sons, we've narrowed in on finishing beef, finishing uh, hogs on pasture and pastured laying hens. Those three enterprises, we're very focused on those along with the marketing enterprise. Um, So that that was a tough learning curve though. And I didn't didn't mention Jared is that uh, I see a lot of farms suffering from what we call death by diversity. Biological diversity, the more of it, the better. Business diversity, that can get things complicated really fast. So finding that balance. uh, I I talk to folks in the stack model enterprise direct marketing business. Most of them are absolutely overwhelmed with too much going on. So just something to consider. No, that's a a great point. And I'm curious what your parents think of what their little, you know, goal of saying, you know, Hey, this might be the future of our farm regenerative agriculture uh, to see where it's gone or where it's come to now. What, what do they talk about? Um, they're, you know, I, I would love to be in their position because they're just at this point they're they had this initial vision and they're willing to make the initial sacrifices and they were, you know, they were immense sacrifices. So I, I couldn't imagine the reward that I would feel if I was them being able to say, okay, we had this vision. We took the leap of faith. We, we trusted in our, our kids and then to be able to sit back and see what's happening. Um, you know, they're, they're in a phase of life where, and they're still involved, especially from a, a vision standpoint, we're talking about a big future decision. You know, they're, they're always involved and, and their input is incredibly valuable, but they're at the point where, they've they have turned over the reins to us brothers and that's important Mm -hmm. because sometimes that transition never happens very well Uh, they did it very early on i would say they transitioned things to us brothers i mean close to 10 years ago and we were you know we were 24 25 years old when they were 
turning the decision making over within our within our own enterprises completely over to us. Um, so we didn't struggle through that transition. But you know, they eleven grandkids now. They are they're enjoying wow. that part of part of life, and um, and you know, they they still keep very busy plugging in in different ways. Um, but they're they're enjoying watching what's happening and adjusting to what's happening. Uh, it's it's there's been adjustment involved uh, too. It's this is their this is their home farm, and every year they have to put up with you know, anywhere from fifteen hundred to almost two thousand customers coming out for our annual customer appreciation farm fest. Wow, that's, yeah, that's a yeah. little different from having this small little hog farm uh, twenty five years ago. That's cool, and and I like I I was yeah, looking on your website and saw your farm fest, and I was like, oh neat, they're going to be at farm fest, which I was at last week, which is in southwest Minnesota, is a uh, massive row crop equipment machinery you know, thing. I was like, huh, that's surprising to see them in it. It's your farm store or your farm party, I guess you could call it. That's, that's really cool. Oh gosh. I, I, there's a lot of things I would love to dig more into and I could talk to for a long time, but I, I want to respect your time and and our listeners time. So I would ask, you've mentioned a few throughout the podcast, uh, but are there any resources that you would recommend for farmers looking at getting into this exactly like how you've done? And that can be anything from a podcast to a to a, a conference or convention you know what, what yeah well um we we love book resources um if you're looking at starting with direct marketing one of the first books i recommend is uh, a book by donald miller called uh, story brand um so if you google that that's an excellent resource to kind of get your mindset where it needs to be when it comes to direct marketing and connecting with your your customers something else that i recommend is um you know we I don't know how, how uh, specifically directed towards direct marketing this is, but uh, Ranching for Profits has an incredible business school. And it's amazing how we've taken concepts from Ranching for Profits and applied it to our grace cart technology business. It's just fundamentals that apply. And we always recommend that. That was a, a game changer for us was attending that that school there. Uh, we'd love to connect with uh, listeners through our own podcast, uh, gracecast.com. My brother and I get on and we share just what we're learning with our own direct marketing business. Uh, that's, a, that's a great connection. In the years past, we've always enjoyed the Grassfed Exchange Conference. Uh, just with, with COVID, I know there's been kind of a little bit of a, a pause on that, but that's always a great resource to keep your, uh, your eye out for. Great networking event. So... Yeah, that uh, Grassroot Exchange is actually where I, I believe I first heard of yeah. Seven Sons is uh, watching you uh, you or your brother speak there. So definitely agree with that. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to plug anything else you want to. You, you mentioned your podcast and, and your Grace Cart. Uh, anything else you want to plug or how can people reach out if they yep. want to learn more? Always, they can find us obviously at sevensons.net. Uh, gracecart.com would be, again, that's the e-commerce platform model that, that we've developed and Currently, there's around 400 other farms and food companies that, that tap in and, and license Grace Cart from us. So that's something that we're really proud of and excited about. Um, another one of my uh, uh, one of my brothers, Bryce, actually uh, started a company called Hengear, Hengear.com. And uh, that's a result of a lot of the innovations we've done on the poultry side of our business, the, the egg laying business. We've developed a lot of innovative products and tools for our business, and, and, we, and we make those available to other farms, pasture-based farms in our industry through uh, the business hengear.com. So you can engage and connect with us there as well. Awesome. 
Well, thanks so much for your time to get time today, Blaine. I really appreciate it. I know you shared a lot of good wisdom. I'm hoping our listeners will glean a lot from. Yep, you bet. It's a lot, lot of fun, Jared. Appreciate the opportunity. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Faro Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Faro Cattle Company at farocattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.